Hello and welcome to Meet Our Makers, an artist interview podcast produced in association with Beats Per Minute. I'm your host, Jeremy J. Fassett. On this episode, we get to meet Bonnie Prince Billy. Bonnie Prince Billy is actually the long-held pseudonym of singer, songwriter, experimental musician Will Oldham. And in this chat, at the end of 2023, he and I get quite a bit into his newest record, which some sources say is his 21st record, called Keeping Secrets Will Destroy You, which came out earlier this year. In addition to talking about the production, songwriting, and thematic links of these new songs, we also talk about the wisdom of older musicians, the magic of collaborating with other people, and his penchant for selecting the perfect singing partners. We touch on the bluntness that he has kind of been famous for in his lyricism. We talk about his intermittent acting career, which was originally what he wanted to do with his life, as well as the early years in bands like Palace Brothers and Palace Music and Palace. We also touch upon the lasting legacy and wonder of his most famous song, I See a Darkness which has recently been covered by Rosalia and was covered a few years back by Johnny Cash. We talk about what that song means to him now and how he keeps it feeling fresh and interesting to him all these years on. We talk about a lot in between as well. It was, as you'd probably expect if you're a fan of Will's music, a relatively rambling conversation, but in a really lovely way. He was warm, inviting, and really down to speak about anything. And you can tell just how much he loves what he does. So thank you for listening. This is me meeting Bonnie Prince Billy. I'm, I'm very real. <laughs> they do. I've, I've actually had AI say, I can assure you I'm a real person. Oh, I'm, I'm sure you have. <laughs> which, is, which is not necessarily an untruth, because of course anyone can assure whether it's true or not. They can, that they can is true. Yeah. yeah, that is true. Um, well, I'm here. You're here. I think you're real. I'm pretty sure you're the real Will Oldham. So. All right. They've developed AI to be as... Ridiculous. They're working. <laughs> In time. Just give it time. Yeah. So hi, Will. How are you? I'm all right. How are you doing? I'm uh, I'm okay. I'm I'm dealing with a cold right now. So that's probably another reason why I sound a little creepy. My voice is like an octave lower, I think, right now. It's just like so clear and compressed. You must have a really nice microphone. How's my sound quality? Is it okay? I think it's fine. Yeah. Good. All right. Well, I appreciate you uh, coming around to hang out for a little bit today. Thank you for that. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, I got a, I got uh, sort of I was looking through the end of the year here. And uh, I, don't, I forget if I had tried to reach out when your album came out earlier this year or not. But I was thinking, who could I invite as sort of a year end, you know, year in review uh, guests? And so you were one of those people. And so I appreciate you uh, agreeing to come on. Terrific. Um, so you yeah, have, a, what are you going to say? Bring it out together the year. Yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. Um, so you have had a, a, a rather nice year, at, at least in terms of from where I'm sitting. Um, <laughs> yeah. you put, a, you put out, uh, your newest record, keeping secrets will destroy you, uh, back in the summer, um, on good old drag city. Um, yeah. I have no idea what number record it is. Usually I like to like tell my guests oh it's your you know ninth record but there are varying accounts on uh which record this is for you wikipedia told me it's your 21st i don't know if that's accurate or not um yeah i don't either <laughs> who <I> mean, knows <laughs> yeah i'm just saying you know i think the first bunny prince billy record was in 98 or 99 and now we are you know it's about 24 25 years later so mm-hmm. surprise me if there were 20 or so records. Well, you do. I mean, I think some of it depends on what you count because you have a lot of collaborative stuff and sort of mini albums here and there. So I'm wondering what their, what their metric is, but according to them, it's your 21st record. Um, it came out back in August, I want to say, and you've been touring it quite a bit since then. Um, how has this uh, year, especially the last half of the year treated you 
since releasing the album? I mean, were you happy with the way it seemed like it was received or especially when you were playing it and whatnot? Like how, how did it go for you? I, I, I love the record. I loved making the record and I have loved, um, the performances that, that do seem to be audiences and, uh, like, to, like to tie records to shows, whether or not that ultimately makes sense. They are, they do coincide. So, but I, I've, yeah, I've, I've really appreciated what's happened on the road and on the stages and with the audiences, um, recently or over the course of the past year. Cause I get, I, I started playing the record, for the first time in in this working life, I've started I started playing the record about a year before recording it. I think uh, mm. live. Um, so to me, I've been touring the record even before making the record. Um, yeah, and it and it and it does work that way because people will say, "Well, where's that song?" So it is, I guess, advanced promotion for the record. <laughs> um, but it's. So yeah, it's, it's felt good. It's felt, it's felt good. The the metrics keep changing how, right, how, right. how we look at, you know, for so many reasons. One of them is that I'm an older human being. Another is that I'm a white Judeo-Christian straight American male. And mm-hmm. it's, it's wonderful in many ways uh, that certain scales of justice are tipping so that um other voices are heard uh more than mine is <laughs> these days yeah but i mean it just changes everything right and i mean you you obviously as you said i mean you've been putting out records as bonnie prince billy for for you said almost 24 25 years you had a few records before that under different names so you've been around for quite a while and it must be gratifying despite obviously we you know we want those more those other voices to be let in on the conversation but it must be gratifying that you can put out a record now and you still have people coming out to see you play these songs that must that must be nice because not not everyone gets that this late in their career you know it's it is uh i think the places where i you know the things that i pay attention to in terms of working in music mm-hmm. or might be, you know, I think are different from uh, where a lot of people put their energy. And I think it was always intended as a very, very long form conversation. So mm-hmm. um, I'm not sure. Sh- and, and it is, it's still uh, s- seemingly valid and valuable to a number of individuals. And, and that is, but I, but I, I think I'm thinking about these days. I'm thinking about you know, today. I was thinking about Merle Haggard and and certain other big country artists and talking about as as they got into their 50s, 60s, 70s, and even beyond with some folks. Um, not not counting Willie Nelson because he's an anomaly in so many ways. But but mm-hmm. basically complaining that country radio wasn't playing their music as they got older, and it does seem the maybe you know it's not coincidental that i'm i'm willing to 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 you know uh start to argue for uh, about ageism as much as as the other thing but partly because we're shooting ourselves societally in the foot by um praising and lifting up the non-existent wisdom of the of young folks mm-hmm. um and denying that there is any uh, validity to the voices of the older population when I, I think it, it makes more sense to understand that uh, ideally older folks are going to know more and, and know better how to express what they know than anybody else on the planet. Mm. So I, a, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's interesting <laughs> too, though, because uh you know, every, every like few years, there's like an older sort of legacy artist for lack of better words, who like gets quite a few nominations at like the Grammys. And yeah, it always feels like such an anomaly when that happens. It's like, it's almost like a, 
okay, we're going to clap for you right now. And then we're going to give the award to someone younger. Yeah. 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 And it's, it's commerce and it's music business. Of course. Of course. Yeah. That is what we're involved with. Yeah. Yeah. Do you, do you consider yourself a country artist? No, I mean, I don't, I don't. Do you consider uh, yourself anything? (laughs) Yeah, I don't. You know, I, I think I've always thought about the way I, it doesn't ultimately sound like it, but I think mm-hmm. I've always considered myself for lack of any other better expression to be an experimental musician. It's just my toolbox is kind of traditional song forms with clear lyrics more or less. Um, but beyond that, it's, it's all about, you know, expanding at least my own concept and whatever audiences are willing to go along on the ride, their concept of what a song is, has been, and, and can still be. Mm. And what the experience of, you know, even distribution, uh, the medium, the me- the actual physical medium or the streaming medium or the digital medium, the, <laughs> the distribution, the re- the relationship to a record label, the relationship to an audience, the relationship to a venue, the relationship to the price of a record or the price of a show or collaborative partners. These are each a, a, a big element in every thing that I dig into. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but I think it's, it's not conventional and people, you know, don't, whatever they don't hear it or don't see it it's fine yeah yeah so this new record it's your first in a few years you released um the the you released your last one before the pandemic and then before that there was quite a few years between that one and the one before that um you know i feel like you are someone who in the late 90s and 2000s was like incredibly prolific and put out a lot of work and now when a bonnie prince billy record comes out it feels kind of like this momentous occasion um so when this one was announced i was very excited and it's a lovely record um i think it's one of your most just like outright prettiest records um i don't know if you would agree or disagree with that but that's from where i'm sitting that's how i feel it's it is definitely Gorgeous. The performances are gorgeous. Yes. Yeah. No, the, the instrumentation is beautiful. The melodies are beautiful. Um, so with this one, you know, since it was a few years and you, you, you're one of those kind of musicians now who, who put, like I said, put one out right before this pandemic. And now we're kind of at the, at the, obviously at the tail end of this pandemic, a lot of people put one out in the midst of it, but you didn't. Um, so with well, this, I mean, the, I actually, you know, I feel like I'm, 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 I feel just uh, my mind is I'm feeling very fortunate because I, I'm feeling there, there, are, there have been things they, like over the course of 2020 with Bill Callahan and, oh, true, and, true. Yep. And all of the collaborators, you know, we made this blind date party, you know, virtual record sort of lifeline record lifeline extended to all our collaborators as well as to, to audiences mm-hmm. and that was you know in my life it was massive at the same time we had as lockdown occurred matt sweeney and i had just finished this our second record together super wolves and right. we mixed it in the first i think we mixed it separately uh in two different sessions in april of 2020 and then it came out i don't remember if it came out 2020 or 2021 but it came out during that time and then and that you know both of those things were i i i couldn't believe yeah how that my life had led me to those pieces of work because i've I'm just kind of blown away by the, the, <laughs> the quality of the collaborations in both of those. And then my friend and colleague Emmett Kelly around that time began a, a cassette only label called Ha Ha Institute and asked me to contribute a record. And so there was a record called High and High and Mighty that's, that's a cassette only release on Ha Ha. Oh, okay. Uh, came out during that time too. So I, so I you've feel been busy. Like been, yeah, and I, I feel like with this one, these four things 
like I say, there's, I'm not sure if I've, if it's, I don't know. I just, again, it just feels really fortunate. And with all of the drag city crew and the domino crew overseas, it's, mm-hmm. it's felt like as many challenges as we've had in, in the, the music world and uh, with, with everything. Um, it, yeah. it's, it's, it's kind of felt like, the musically some easily some of the greatest times of my life i mean that's yeah i mean you say you you feel fortunate that's a really fortunate sort of inversion of what a lot of people went through so it's good i mean i i had forgotten about the bill callahan um collaborative record and then yeah the super wolves album so yeah you did stay busy um so that's great um and then of course no distractions and the only thing i had to pay attention to really was keeping my family happy and healthy and, and right. uh, working on music. And so that was just, you know, that aspect of COVID-19 was, was absolutely wonderful. Yeah. And then that dovetails into this album and the writing and recording of this album. And I'm, I'm curious with keeping secrets will destroy you. What, some of the uh, sort of driving forces were behind it for you or what you were hoping to sort of tackle with this album? Over the course of that lockdown time, I, 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 I've always looked at life and music and interpersonal relationships as having a lot of urgency and that's not something you necessarily walk down the street or hang out with folks who seem to carry that sense of urgency. Um, and even as, you know, even as we're told that the planet is dying or we can see things happening that require our thoughtful attention. Um, it was during, you know, one of the, the other, things that I, for once I felt I fit fit in with the rest of the world because everybody was all of a sudden aware that life actually does have a constant urgency about it. And it felt like, I I felt like I understood for a little while because uh, my connection with my friends my colleagues and, and, and the, and the audiences, some of and there's a, that they, those sets intersect um, that, that music, how crucial and valuable uh, and important music was to our life, to our lives, you know, to sustain us. Um, I think that, and a lot of these songs were, began their lives during, during that time. But it, I, and I, I feel like, the record carried on from that realization or understanding and was, I felt for a moment that I had the ability and the authority to imbue these songs with uh, uh, an, a justified sense of value that mm. it's not always easy to approach or, or realize or transmit but and, and you know when the record was done, I thought, oh boy, you know there there was a lot of there was a lot of momentum and uh, and I don't know moving forward now how to find that again. So I don't, you know, I, I, it, it, part of me is like, oh, yeah. it's all over now, um, because getting people to focus, I guess. Uh, there are, you know, there are forces that seem hell bent on destroying our desire and ability to focus on anything, um, which is hard for uh, people who are trying to make things mm-hmm. uh, for other people or for people trying to do virtually anything in their lives. So I also, you know, connected to this record, I also want to talk about the... I guess almost would be title track that you just put out recently. Um, Keeping secrets will destroy you. So you released this song as a standalone single. It's not part of the album. Um, 
how come it wasn't on the proper record? Was it, did it just not fit on there? There was another group of songs. Uh, we put, we put it out on a, on a cassette accompanying, uh, a, a bundle with, with the record, uh, mm. when the record came out. And that cassette is called Old Hard and Marvelous. And I, I think there's seven songs on it. And at one point during lockdown, I wrote to a, a friend of mine named Tom Colton, who's a farmer in the eastern shore of Virginia. I said, would you send me some song titles? So he sent me a postcard with about 30 song titles on it. Mm-hmm. And I and I picked seven, seven or eight of them to try to write songs from and, and, and worked worked out this song form that that now I'm calling these repeaters because they the songs became uh, they were acrostic so like he he sent a song title herons h-e-r-o-n-s and I didn't know why he sent any of these song titles and so I thought well how can I make a song from this title and I decided to approach it you know kind of coldly uh, I guess and turn it into these uh, acrostic lyrics so that herons, you know, I wrote herons down the left side of the page. And then the first line had to start with H second line with E second line, Mm -hmm. third line with R. And then I had a, you know, a six line song and that's a really short song. And all of these songs were short like that, six to 12 lines. And so I thought, well, what if we repeat them, you know, repeat Mm -hmm. them over and over again. And, uh, and then ideally present them to, to present them to audiences. And they're so short that the, the dream was that I could teach the songs to the audience in a live setting and they could be singing along by the second, third, fourth, fifth time through the song. Yeah. And uh, there was a song on there or there's one of those songs he had sent a title tense hash T E N T S slash H A S H. And so I wrote a song and and did a couple of performances of these repeaters. One was at Mass Mocha as part of Wilco's music festival that they do there. And one of them was at Chicago Festival of the Humanities, I think it's called, at, a, at just a, a show. And, you know, had wonderful musicians come along and printed up song lyric sheets to hand out to the audience. And mm-hmm. one of those songs, Tense Hash, um, is this, yeah, it, that's the one that is we're now calling keeping secrets will destroy you. And, and when I made the record, I had songs to choose from because I've been doing nothing but working on songs during all this time. Yeah. And my wife was very fond of that song. And when it came down to ultimately recording the record and picking songs, I didn't choose that song and she was really irritated. (laughs) Um, and I thought as a consolation you know, that I would call the record Keeping Secrets Will Destroy You. And she was happy with that, but she still was a little disgruntled. Uh, then my f- my friend and colleague Shazad Ismaili, who I've worked with a bunch, he, he, he significantly contributed to the record Wolfroy Goes to Town. He was sort of the recorder, r- recording engineer and, and kind of co-producer with Emmett Kelly and me. Mm. And he, he said, I've been working some sessions with the, uh, with Jim Keltner, who's, you know, who's 80, 81, 82 and has an, an amazing resume. And he said, and, and it's been really good vibes playing with him. And I think that you would appreciate playing with him. And he said, I could probably make that happen if you'd like. So I thought, because I do, you know, I, I love hanging out with and playing with older musicians because Mm -hmm. they know more than younger musicians, no matter what, they know more than younger musicians and, and spending time with, so, but I, so we set up a session in Los Angeles and I didn't know what to bring to the session because I didn't know what I was expecting from the session. You know, I had, I'd never met this guy. I'd never worked with him i didn't know the record was already done so i was basically going to record some orphan songs we don't really put out seven inches anymore otherwise i would have planned a you know a seven inch yeah so we brought three different songs one that had been left you know out of the song list for the record and then one of the repeaters which was that tense hash keeping secrets will destroy you and then a song that i'd written for a low budget horror movie made by a guy named London May. And uh, the one that seemed to work was that 
keeping secrets will destroy you. And then, then, then it just seemed like I, I, I've long, um, not supported, uh, the, the whole concept of the, the way that release dates, the tyranny of the re record release date. And I asked drag city on, on this record, I, I said, finally, let's do this. It doesn't, you know, we've got nothing to lose anymore. This whole industry is in a complete disarray and shambles like much of the rest of the world. What if we didn't treat the release date like the end of the the record, but the beginning of the record and the beginning yeah. of talking to people about the record and they were down and, and it was terrific uh, doing it that way. And it seems to make so much more sense because most records just seem to die on the release date these days with the amount of music that comes out Yeah, and that music comes out. Um, but also nobody, you know, the, the audience is at a disadvantage on the release date because writers and whoever else has heard these advanced copies and the audiences haven't. And it's, and so we read and we're expected to trust music journalists, which that's something that's been proven to not necessarily be the greatest place to put our trust. And, uh, but this song existed. Um, there's some singers here in Louisville that I had performed the song live with and thought, oh, well, I'll ask them to come over here and sing on the song. And then it just seemed like a nice sort of a, a nice exit for, for Drag City and, and Domino sort of, that would be the, the, you know, the end cap on our work, our active work on, on letting people know that this record exists was, would be to put out this song because it can or and ultimately does now share the title with the record and, uh, you know, and, and it's a beautiful, you know, again, it, it's a beautiful, it's a very different, I think, re recording from the record, but it's, but it's beautiful. And there's lots of insane performances on it. So yeah, just put yeah. that song, put the, so yes, put the song out there as a, as a way of just saying, you know, goodbye. Thank you. Now let's, you know, we'll, we'll, we'll begin to move on to, to new things, I guess, in some ways. Yeah. That makes sense. And I'm, I'm, I'm glad, I mean, I'm glad we got to hear it. Um, it is, it is, I'm not sure it would have fit perfectly in the fabric of the record, but it does feel akin to the record and it is beautiful. And the video that you put out with it is great. Um, so yeah, I'm very glad that, that we got to hear that. Um, <clears throat> you mentioned voices. I have a whole section of my notes. I want to talk about voices with you. Sure. Um, because you are, I mean, you're a singer-songwriter in many ways, in addition to many other things, which means that we do hear your voice a lot. But you are sort of known also for including lots of other people to sing with you, um, almost like duet partners at times, you know, whether it's uh, Ashley Weber in uh, Lie Down in the Light or Angel Olsen on Wolfroy, um, Don Mac the great Don McCarthy on The Letting Go. Yeah. Um and now Dane Waters on this newest record. So, I, you know, there's many, many, many more. Those are just to name a few. But how, you know, especially when it's like one person that does a lot of the other singing with you, how do you go about usually finding the right voice for the right record? Well, yeah, no, but, uh, I've been thinking, you know, uh, I've never, of course, I've never been quite comfortable with yeah with the 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 title singer songwriter and and mm -hmm. I've been specifically thinking about it over the past few days because I was uh, listening to these narrations by uh, the the awesome Phil Elvrum and the awesome uh, Kyle Field uh, talking about records they made about twenty five years ago twenty years ago or so um, Phil Elvrum's Mount Erie credited to the microphones and and. Kyle Fields, like Green Leaves, credited to his Little Wings project, mm -hmm. and what is, you know what do we what is what do we do what do we do for a living? And it's and it, the, you know just in the past day or so, I was thinking, no, it's more like singer record maker, yeah. Uh, you know, and even the the performances they're they're all different things, and and they can be really wild and interesting and surprising and satisfying, but they do they do share. A relationship to something like what a you know a, a book read or you know a writer does when they travel around and read little parts of their books. Um, it's not the same, but it is the same on, on some levels. Been because it's like 
I'm thinking about records. I'm thinking about that's, I got, I got into this because I wanted to make records uh, in the way that somebody might want to write books or make movies. Yeah. Rather than be in front of an audience and sing songs. That was never, never anything that I ever wanted to do. Um, it was just, I, you know, spent so much time listening to records and pouring over records and records were so important to me that I thought, Oh, I want to do this. I want to make records. Um, so, you know, each moment of my adult life is, is spent sort of in anticipation of, and in the early stages or, or middle stages of trying to create and make a record or making a record or in the aftermath of, of, making a record and, and in each of those periods, especially in, in, you know, I'm encountering because I'll go see a lot of music and listen to, listen to a lot of music. I encounter other people who are mind blowing creative musical forces. And, and usually it pushes my buttons so hard that I think I want to, be around this person and make things with this person and mm -hmm. observe how they specifically singers. I, I have a lot of admiration for a lot of different musicians, but singing is my thing. It's what I relate to. It's what I connect with. And it's, it's, you know, when I witness somebody singing, I know that internally my lungs and throat and brain are attempting to do replicate the gymnastics that whatever that person is doing and that's kind of how I judge if I love a singer or not. It's just if I can sympathize with where they're coming from and where they're going and where they take me, then I think like, oh, that's my favorite, you know, one of my favorite singers. And each of the people that you mentioned uh, did that, you know, did that to me. Yeah. Uh, so it's, it's then oftentimes it can be, I, I can hear somebody, um, whether it's a singer specifically, we're talking about singers right now and, and, begin if there's a group of songs that I'm working on and trying to put into shape so that they could someday be a record, I will then begin, especially then, then, I, then I'll maybe, uh, I'll ask the person, I'll say, what do you think in six months or eight months, would you be willing to participate in making a record with me? And if they say yes, then I will just begin to shape the songs towards that end, even though, you know, one of the greatest parts of the collaboration is surprise. So it's not, I'm, I'm not saying, oh, I know when, you know, when I'm in the studio with Ashley, she's, she's going to, I'm going to ask her to do this right here. No, no, it's not that at all. It's, I wonder what she's going to do because she's obviously, uh, you know, an amazing and resourceful creative song builder. Mm -hmm. um, what will she bring to me and how will she bring, and what will she bring to the session? What will she bring to the song? And that's how, but, but just trying to create an unknown space for this person to, to bring in and, and fill and, and change the, the color and the trajectory of, of where the song could potentially go and what its identity eventually will be. So yeah, like each one of those, there would be, a, you know, I remember Ashley just, we played on Vancouver Island and, and she opened and I'd never heard of her. Um, she didn't have any recordings and I asked her if she might, you know, I said, do you have any recordings? She, and she didn't, but she had, you know, wonderfully, she had a, a twin sister and the two of them, you know, I don't know what you call unique when it's two people, but they're mm -hmm. two people have between them a unique voice and, and their voices as their appearance as because they're twin sisters. Uh, it manifests for them in this incredible, they, they sing in, in a, in a similar way that's dissimilar from anybody else I've heard easily in my entire life. I can't think of a single voice that sounds like their voices, but their voices sound like one voice. So she was, she was like, here, listen to some of my sister's music. And that was kind of helpful, but I know that there was something about her presence that, as I love Amber uh, Weber, her sister uh, as a person and as a musician very, very much. And I don't know if it would be ridiculous to someday try to, to sing with her, but, <laughs> but at the same time, there's something, I guess also, cause Amber is maybe the more, you know, she's, she's done a lot more touring. She seems to be the more, uh, not alpha, but the more, uh, what do you call it, extroverted of the, of the two. Mm. And I probably identify with, 
I, you know, I identify with introversion and, and feel like that's a space that I'm comfortable exploring, uh, I guess. Um, yeah. And, 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 you know, yeah. Angel, Angel came through Emmett because Emmett and I had long discussed, I had long dreamed of, of bringing this Kevin Coyne record called Babel to, to life and putting together a touring band to tour this record that Kevin Coyne never actually really toured. And it required a very strong, dramatic, theatrical, capable, uh, ideally female voice. Um, although, of course, the, our concepts of gender are wonderfully exploding now as well. But the record came from the late 80s, I mean, the late 70s, early 80s, and, and when gender identities were more popularly discreetly defined so looking yeah. for somebody who could represent this character because it's a concept record with two characters and couldn't you know i kept thinking who 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 could it be who could it be and then emmett said i think i've met someone who could play the dagmar kraus part and it was angel in chicago and and that was that was true she was couldn't have couldn't have worked with somebody better at at bringing that because then we did we toured that record we toured Babel um, and then just we had such a great band at that point we just kept going for a couple few years mm -hmm. I know Angel is also someone who you know worked with you uh, before she, her star really exploded and it's it's been kind of fun because I you know I listened to Wolf Roy when it came out and then and it felt like right around then is when her her meteor sort of rose um, yeah. And so that was kind of fun. And I'm, I'm still such a huge fan of her first record and, and her voices. I mean, it's, it's true. I mean, I was going to say her voice is kind of unlike anyone else's, but so is Ashley's and so is Dawn's. I mean, yeah, you, you have this, this way of sort of like locating, like finding these quite unique voices. It's been, it's been quite a treat to see like who you, who you sing with around here. And I want, you know, I, I want you know, to do my part in creating a world in which I and everybody else is surrounded by these voices and that these voices are celebrated. And so yeah. it's, that's just, that's just seems to be, yeah, that's part of the job description as well. It seems like. Yeah. So as for lyrically, um, you know, we talked about what some of the driving forces were behind this record. Um, but across your discography and across many songs i mean you've always sort of written about and sung about um sort of the 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 gnarlier parts of existence the the thornier parts of existence yeah. um you know positives and negatives in between romantic strife sexuality perils of the earth etc um but you've always done so it's even from the beginning you've always done so with such a, a candor that i feel like a lot of songwriters don't uh, do. Um, yeah. And I'm curious, after listening to your music for so long and now getting a chance to talk to you about it, um, are you or were you ever like shy about putting out some of the lyrics you've penned? Because some of them get pretty blunt, you know, and pretty up close and personal. I don't know. Or does it never even phase you? Uh, I, well... There is, you know, especially again, especially now with, but always with, with so much music available to us, I, th it is always part of the responsibility in, in participating in the creation of any given piece of music is, well, what is, you know, why is this not superfluous? Not to say that it isn't superfluous, but if you wanted to argue why it wasn't superfluous, what you know, what's what's in your favor? And, and so that always felt like, and and oh, and I, so I think it is. You know, where is the where is the the lyric? How does the lyric approach different from others? And and who do I share? And the idea is if I, if you share too much with too many, too many qualities with too many people, then maybe you should sit back and maybe look at another line of work. Mm. Uh, so uh, on that level, and part of it is, is also frustration is, is thinking, well, why aren't more people singing about certain things? Um, these are things that I'm, you know, you find, um, a lot of fulfillment in listening to certain pieces of music and, and then, 
you realizing that you're projecting to some extent what's being said in the song, either because they felt shy about maybe saying things or their understandable desire for um, success and acceptance made them wisely choose to um, skirt around certain subjects or certain specifics. Uh, But how, you know, thinking like, well, how far, and you want to permeate people's consciousnesses, right? And, And you want to latch on to um, the things that are troubling people uh, in in part to either spur them towards um, well, to spur them towards addressing the trouble, whether whether it's accepting the trouble or taking action uh, against it or or, or with an idea towards um, eliminating it somehow. And the only way to do that is to, you know, just slowly walk towards, uh, because it, it shouldn't be so confrontational that, that it, that someone feels like, well, my listening experience is all about this specific, uh, issue. Well, it's not about that specific issue, but it, it, it should be, it can be a part of the, the whole experience. And, um, I've been thinking about you know I was I'm, I've always liked the movies since I was a child I liked the movies and, and I really you know really liked the movies um, and, mm-hmm. and I don't see as many movies now just for whatever reason but I but I have understood in seeing certain you know what they call pre-code Hollywood movies um, how strangely avoidant. Um, American popular culture has been since around 1935 yeah. to, you know, into, into the, at least the nineties. And, and there's, there are strong arguments for into today, but, but understanding that there's so much of our human experience that, you know, is pushed to the side or, or, or thought of as, as unspeakable. Um, and it, it felt like it feels, you know, as so many are, are expressing now, it feels like there's certain things that you should sing about and you should talk about um, whether or not people like uh, to um, accept that, that, that these are parts <laughs> of our lives. Yeah. And I mean, one of your most famous songs isn't even all that uh, confrontational. Um, I See a Darkness, you know, that's yeah. one that, seemingly immortal i mean you you carry it with you even now i mean you play it live still um you've done a couple different versions of it um over the years so i'm curious then what is it about that song that keeps you coming back to it and then have you sort of learned anything new about the song or changed how you feel about that song over the years yeah i i i sometimes I've had concerns that returning to the song at times I've had concerns that returning to the song, um, you know, is self-sabotaging and in, in terms of, you know, <laughs> wrapping, wrapping one's fate up with something that, you know, uh, just, just singing. If I sing that song, tonight at a show, I'm going to, I'm going to say the line, I see a darkness, whatever, eight times. Yeah. And you know, that if I'm, if I'm uh, brainwashing myself uh, or, you know, if I have the ability to brainwash myself, that that might not be the best thing to uh, constantly sing. I guess I learned that to some extent when we did the, I did the record with bitch and Bajas and, and trying to think of appropriate lyrical content turned to my, 30 year collection of Chinese fortune cookie fortunes for lyrics. And when we would perform them live, people came up after every show saying, wow, because you know, Chinese fortune cookie fortunes are all affirmations for the most part. Yeah. And and, and that wasn't the intention to make affirmative songs. It was just what, how can I work with these musicians whom I dearly love and, and, and deeply respect. And and what's a good, you know, what's a comfortable lyric form that allows me to focus as much or more on the collaboration as on the lyrical content. And, but, but people were, 
uplifted by the performances because these because we sang them like I sang them like mantras over and over and over again. Yeah. Um, so I see a darkness is potentially going to have on some level the opposite effect, although it was always intended as a song of optimism and a song of in, in treatment, I guess. Um, and, and I can also, I can gently tweak the lyrics on any given night as well to, to give it a, a slightly different um, direction or, or, or intention or, or to address an intention that I don't even realize I need to sing until I'm halfway through the song and think, Oh, tonight, this is what this song is about. Oh, tonight, mm. this is what this song is about. At the same time, there, you know, on a structural level, the first verse and the second verse have different chord structures. And that's fun. Um, it's fun to travel through the song musically. And I, I can... I can play it in a variety of keys as well. And and each time I change the key, um, it changes where it sits in my throat, where it sits in my chest, where it feels in my head. And that puts a new slant on, on the lyrics. Um, and then as well, because it is an, an appreciated and known song, there is this phenomenon of, you know, we're out there. I'm out there to, identify, establish, reveal, create connection with the audience. Mm -hmm. And the song has already done that to some extent. And so each time that song is sung, a good part of, of, of its power in, in, on any given night is this recognition and celebration of, of a connection. This is why we're in the same room together. You know, the audience probably has a, a relationship to the song on some level. I have a relationship to the song on some level. That's the that's the glue that binds us together, and that can be a very you know a, a catalyst moment in in any given show. Yeah. Uh, so it's, and and it's and it, you know and and I yeah yeah so and, and it, it, yeah yeah that's the best way of describing it. <laughs> I mean, it's also interesting too because the song has sort of taken on this wild life outside of itself because like. I know a lot of people probably were surprised when global pop sensation Rosalia covered it. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. Which is such a beautiful, beautiful cover. Um, yeah. Because her voice is uh, incredible. I mean, speaking of, you know, incredible, powerful, unique voices. Um, yeah. And then also Johnny Cash covered it and, and you sang with him on it. I mean, yeah. like, it's had this sort of surreal other existence. So I think that helps its permanence in some way. Absolutely. I mean, absolutely. I'm, I'm, uh, yeah, uh, those it's those, those, both of those performers, you know, giving that song the time of day, you, I'm sure you can imagine, um, the kind of the strength of the affirmation that comes with, with each of those, uh, is, is, you know, would have been beyond my, capacity to dream you know before they happened yeah so i got one question from my uh my, my fellow beats per minute colleagues because whenever i'm about to interview someone i usually ask if they have any burning questions yeah. um and i got one from from my fellow writer over there john who who is um deeply in love and has been for years with days in the wake oh, um, right on. Yeah, he says it is his favorite work of yours, and he really wanted me to talk to you about it for a moment. Uh, he specifically wanted to know how you relate to work from that era now. And then I'm sort of curious if you remember anything about making that record. Yeah. Yeah, I think I remember it fairly well. Um, how do I relate to that? Uh, it's... It, these are great. It, it's It's so good to, to, to hear this question and, and, you know, these thoughts from, from your, your colleague, uh, because, you know, it, it gives me, I have unique access to exploring, um, the potential power of, of that record because I, you know, it was part of my, it was part of my life. And, and I know that as the years go on, you know, I, I try to listen or, you know, in, in approaching 
music, I wonder, um, it, there are levels on, uh, on which I, I don't know how to, how to say this. Like, <laughs> uh, well, let's just talk about the record for a second. Um, sure. so yeah, we made the, there's no one, what will take care of your record palace brothers, um, which, you know, wasn't, Palace Brothers was, wasn't really, a th- it was myself and my friend Todd Brashear playing songs together. I, I wrote the majority of the songs and the others were covers. Todd, Todd never presented an, or, an original song, but we called it Palace Brothers because we wanted to harmonize with each other and we were just fans of the Everly Brothers and Leuven Brothers. And, um, and then when Drag City said, well, we're, you know, they accepted the idea of it, putting a seven inch out and they said, well, where's the full length? And Okay, so we we brought more of our friends together to make a record, but there was no like band meeting or idea that this was a band or anything like that. And and right. after that, um, you know, and and everybody, you know, I love working with people who have their own lives because that helps make I think a multi-dimensional record. And after that, people went on with their own lives, doing different things, and trying to then think, well, what you know how do I make another record now? You know, it was brand new to me, all this. Uh, and I think we tried to make a record with Grant Barger, who, who did the, who recorded that record and plays on it. And it, I couldn't figure it out. And I didn't know what to do. I had songs that I was, and the songs were sort of, there were a few songs. Yeah, there were a few, few songs that I worked on with a friend of mine named Brian Rich and he, he was living in Moscow for some reason. And I went to visit him <laughs> and we worked, we worked on songs there. And then I think I bought, he was doing journalist work and he had a Marantz uh, cassette recorder, stereo, you know, stereo cassette recorder for use, used to, to record interviews specifically to sync with uh, film or, or video and so I bought it from him for, I don't remember, $400, I think. Um, and it came with a microphone. Uh, he gave me a microphone. And, and I just thought, well, time is moving on. I tried to make this record once. It was, it was a failure. I should, just, I should just record the songs and that will be that. And then we can move on. And so I carried the Marantz around with me here in Louisville, Kentucky, and also in Birmingham, Alabama, where I don't remember if I lived anywhere then, but I, so it stayed with family in Birmingham, stayed with family in, in Kentucky. And uh, yeah, recorded some at, at like in my parents' house and some uh, at my older brother's house in, in Birmingham. And, and uh yeah, just just pretty much. And then I think my younger brother sat next to me and played some guitar on two songs. My older brother and his wife were in the room when we did the song Come a Little Dog. And, and in order to do overdubs, we took the cassette out of the Morant, recorded a couple tracks on the Morants, took, took the cassette out, put it on his stereo in the living room, played it there, and then play, we played live along to that. Oh, wow. And recorded that onto the Morants. Um, which yeah, that was, that was come a little dog. And I think I wasn't, you know, I was thinking, how do I make, uh, uh, you know, this kind of very, very minimalistic record and, and what were my, what would my models be? And I know the two models I used were a friend of mine had given me a cassette of, you know, PJ Harvey has this tendency of releasing demos for her records. And I guess for her, first record she had released maybe there was maybe the island records had released this limited edition demos from was that what was that what was that called the first record dry was dry the first record yeah yeah yes yes, dry so it was the dry demos and i you know as as many people have stated with a lot of pj harvey records the demos i found much more affecting than i you know Dries are great record, but the demos were more powerful for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then uh, like one of the only, 
a, a Bob Dylan record that I love and one of the only records of his that I can even listen to without being bored to tears that, that has come out in the last, say, 40 years was uh, <laughs> his record, Good As I've Been To You, which was his, um, he played the whole record by himself, came out probably in 1990, 1991. So it was a new record at the time. And he's doing ostensibly uh, traditional and public domain songs. That's what's claimed on the liner notes. Although he, as his, his also tendency, just at, you know, completely stole arrangements and and stole copyrights um, and claimed them as his own. Yeah, knowing that he is uh, a behemoth that can't really be challenged and won't be questioned. But it's a great record, um, and so I was, you know, kept listening to those two records over and over again, thinking like, how many different keys are represented and what is the, you know, how many time signatures and what's the sequence of these records. So that, that makes me want to listen to them again and again and again and thinking like, well, if I just keep doing that, I can maybe put a record together that, that uh, people will appreciate listening to, you know? Yeah. And, and, you know, and then, you know, I was, like I say, most, mostly kind of completely by myself or, by chance, you know, if my, one of my brothers was around, I would say, would you come in here while I try to record the song and maybe play something? Um, but it was, uh, you know, a, a lonesome affair and a, and a record made out of complete desperation. Yeah. And that's interesting because like, you know, that is so long ago in, in your discography and it is a record that you know, I've had, and I'm sure my colleague and others have had in their lives for a while. I I had no idea what of the story behind that. So that's very interesting for me to hear too. <clears throat> yeah. yeah. Um, and it I was have, funny also because yeah, the, the cover, you know, people then were said, Oh, this is, I think, you know, people were like, Oh, well, this is a, some sort of a Jandek reference. And, it, and, you know, I would say, who's that? And, and I learned who Jandek was and it, and it does resemble <laughs> records, at least superficially. For sure. So I do have one ungraceful segue. There's no segue. Um, before I, because we gotta, we do have to wrap up shortly. But before I let you go, I would be remiss without asking about your film work. Um, yeah. You mentioned you love the movies. I'm also a film guy. I went, I, I studied film in college. I, I'm, I'm a big movie person, and I uh, know that you have acted a few times. Yeah. Um, I'm sure I first saw you in Matewan, but that was long before I knew who you were as a musician. So the first time I saw you consciously was Old Joy, um, the beautiful Kelly Reichardt film. She's an, such an incredible filmmaker. If people out there haven't seen her films, please seek them out. Um, so you were, you know, you had a, a main role in Old Joy. You've had a cameo in um, Wendy and Lucy. And then you've had a slew of other film work as well. Um, Matewan is from the late 80s. So correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I believe that's before you put out any published music. Um, Absolutely. Yeah, there was no, it was, it, 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 we filmed it in 86. I, I, you know, all my friends pretty much were music people. Uh, I was 16 here, mm -hmm. here in Kentucky. And, and we're actually at that time, some of my closest friends you know, we, we did everything together. And so they said, well, let's, you know, would you want to be in a band with us? And I'm thinking, what does that even mean? Cause I, I was, I would, I was acting and then I took pictures. So I was always at band practices, taking pictures of stuff. But mm -hmm. I, you know, I thought like, well, that's a way of deepening our relationship. And I remember them sending me sort of demos or parts of songs when we were shooting mate one. And, and, and I was like, I, I don't even know what to, what I'm supposed to do. I don't, you know, I, I literally don't know anything about, I was, you know, playing music. And after about six months, I think I, I think they said, well, we're going to go on and move ahead without, you know, if that, that's a good idea. And then they, that was the, <laughs> and Slint uh, was that band. Oh, wow. Okay. I didn't know that. Yeah. Um, was acting like ever your primary aspiration? Like, was that something you wanted to really, really get into? Or was it something that just sort of happened? No, it was absolutely my primary aspiration. Mm. And, and then I was wonderfully and horribly misled by the experience of making Mate One because that was an incredible experience. And I thought, okay, it's, this is good that I put so much time and energy into this work because this is absolutely what I could see doing for the rest of my life. And then 
when I explored it more after I graduated high school, I realized that Mate One is an anomaly and John Sales and Maggie Renzi, his producing partner, are do not do things for the reasons that other people do them and in ways that other people do them. And, you know, the bulk of the entertainment industry is done in, in really kind of alienating and uh, unpleasantly challenging ways. And, and I, then I was, I was really lost then at that moment, you know, mm. in my around age 19 or 20, I realized like, Oh, I don't want to do this at all. I don't want to live in Los, Los Angeles. I don't want to live in New York and I don't want to meet these people. I don't want to do work with any of these people. This is terrible. What the fuck am I going to do with my life? Yeah. And was able to sort of tie all of my experience in, you know, being with musicians and listening to you know records and loving and caring about music so deeply with my experience in, you know, in theater and production and, and understanding what it is to make things, you know, to make things and to perform things. And, and so very slowly, so, because I started to learn to play uh, an instrument at age 19, I think. 18, 19. And, and then, and then thought, well, you know, um, let's, I'm going to, you know, I started working with Todd on songs and then we recorded them, sent them to drag city and they liked them. And then I thought, well, wait, and then they, then they put out the seven inch and they sent, sent us a few hundred dollars. Like this is a profit from this. Yeah. And I was like, Oh, okay. I think this is, this is what I need to be doing. So if you kind of skirted out of the industry, so to speak, how, how did you end up meeting and working with Kelly? Kelly specifically, I think through my friend, the the absolutely mind-blowing artist and writer, uh, Alan Licht, was working maybe at Kino with mm. Kelly, friends with Kelly. And I think she was she was make, made this movie called Ode, which was her second movie. It doesn't even really hardly exist now. I think anthology in New York just tried to show it. And from her, they got a digital copy that was so bad and pixelated that they ended up finding a VHS copy and showing the VHS copy instead because oh, wow. that's you know, confined. Um, but she just, she had put some music, she was ed editing this movie, movie Ode, and she had put some temp music in and thought, asked Alan if, if he thought I would be game, I think, for replacing the temp music with original music. And I was, and that was the beginning of our, our relationship and, and, and throughout, you know, because Maywan is such a fantastic, uh, unique movie, people would still, you know, sometimes reach out to me for one thing or another. And, and usually it wasn't something that would work out or, 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 you know, had any future, but every once in a while, like, like conversations with Kelly or with, with David Lowry and, uh, Toby Hallbrook's oh, yeah. producing writing partner, you know, these are, sometimes sometimes things really work out yeah yeah and i mean I, I feel like i heard this maybe on the commentary or read it somewhere but is it true that you improvised the old joy story monologue in old joy yes um there, hmm. there was something that was written in there was was a story that i don't think john raymond the writer or kelly realized was kind of popular urban lore and I had heard it from a couple of different people. And I thought, you know, if anybody else has heard this story before, they're going to think they're going to get, you know, they're going to lose focus at this moment in the movie. Hmm. And so I think, um, yeah. So I, I, I think I suggested to Kelly, I said, there's, here's some thoughts. What would you think about doing, you know, exploring these thoughts instead of the speech as written? And she said, you know, go for it. And so it, yeah. yeah, It's such a beautiful movie. I mean, I'm, I was so happy that Criterion released it a couple of years ago. Um, yeah. It's a beautiful transfer. I mean, you give a lovely performance. Daniel London gives a lovely performance. It's it's so good. I, I hope the Criterion release lets more people see it. It's a um, beautiful movie. And, and yeah, God bless, especially Criterion over the past five or six years. It's, yeah. it's really uh, carved out a, a, a very, I think, great and uh and I'll dare say, hopefully, important you know place in our culture. Yeah. Did you uh, did you happen to catch the DVD series? Yeah. Did you happen to catch her last film? Because I missed it when it came through my my state showing up. No, I have not. I know. I, have... I, know. I need to somehow catch up with that because I heard it was lovely and Michelle Williams and her work so well together. So I was very excited about that. Yeah. Um. Yeah. All right. Well, 
it's been over an hour and I've had quite a pleasure speaking with you. Um, you know, you had a good 2023. I hope 2024 is is just as bountiful and fruitful for you. Um, thank you. Thank you. I, uh, I really appreciate you taking an hour or so to, to chat with me today. Well, I really, I really thank you for that. Thanks for your time and thanks for collecting and, and spreading, you know, music stories and, and yeah, keeping, keeping people informed and connected. I, I'm very, very grateful for your work. I appreciate that. I'm grateful for your work. It's been uh, monumental to me as, a, as an artist over the years. So thank you. Thank you. All right. Take care, Will. Peace out. <laughs>